This talk was recorded at Word Alive 2015. Word Alive is here to serve the church in reaching the world. Our desire is to resource individuals and churches and empower them in their mission to local communities in the wider world. For further information and to hear more talks from this and previous events, please visit our website at wordaliveevent.org. Right, the time has come, we should begin. Welcome back everyone, welcome if you are here for the first time today. I will in a minute begin with a little bit of a recap just to sum up very briefly what we talked about yesterday. Before we plunge into the substance of the morning and I pray, let me just give you a quick book advert. I spoke yesterday about open theism, which is a movement that denies the exhaustive knowledge of God of all things in the future and of all human choices in the future. And I was nosing around the bookstall yesterday and found, unbelievably, a pile of these, God's Lesser Glory by Bruce Ware, which is a stunning account of and really complete dismantling of open theist theology. It is a brilliant, brilliant book. Uh, If you read open theist books, you'll find that what they say is that they are just taking the Bible in its plain sense. God asks questions in the Bible... Well, that must mean he doesn't know the answers. And Bruce Ware is brilliant on the exegesis of the biblical text. So he says, well, let's take that idea seriously. Remember, the open theist says God knows the present completely, but doesn't know the future that depends on human choices. He says, well, look, it's interesting in Genesis, God says to Adam, where are you? Let's take that really seriously. That must mean God does not know the geographical location of Adam in that moment. And he just points out how if you take this open theist method of reading the Bible and push it, it takes you to all sorts of bizarre positions, which open theists themselves don't actually believe. And therefore, they aren't really reading the Bible in the way they claim to be reading the Bible. It's a great book. What is astonishing is that it's only two pounds on the bookstall. There are about 12 of them, and there are many more than 12 of you. So I encourage you, if you... I probably shouldn't tell you, I'll probably be arrested if I tell you to leap over the barrier or something. It's some grave health and safety violation. I encourage you to proceed in a calm and orderly fashion out of the entrance at the back left and to progress in a sedate fashion towards the bookstore to get there before anyone else does to buy one of these. Two pounds. Second point of business before we plunge in, questions. It may be that you've got questions relating to what I'm going to say. Unless I finish unexpectedly early, um, I don't plan to take questions from the floor. I think it's a slightly large group to take questions. Um, and many of you might prefer not to ask your questions across the floor. Uh, but just come and ask me afterwards if you've got questions coming up. I'm, I'm here. Um, it's why I'm here. So come and ask me. Accost me on the footpaths or at the breakfast table and ask me a question. If you've got questions coming up, please don't leave them unasked. Do come and ask. Third piece of business um, is that we have some members of the pastoral team here today. My suspicion is that um, the material we're going to think about this morning, uh, transitioning into this afternoon, will raise various questions for some of you and probably some painful questions for some of you and that you may want somebody you could talk to about them or simply pray with about them. And so at the end, um, you're very welcome to come and talk to me, but uh, there are members of the pastoral team here who will now stand up. Where are they? There are, there are late members of the pastoral team. On the, either that or they're very shy. Um, but uh, hopefully the, I'll ask the question again at the end and maybe they will, they will then identify themselves at that point. Otherwise, you can just come and talk to me. 
And um, good. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's pray, and then we'll begin. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we would see more of your love this morning. We long to understand the ways in which your love is different from human love, and especially the ways in which your love is so much greater than all human loves. So we pray for the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit in our minds this morning as we consider the teaching of your word, and we pray that you would not only grow our understanding, uh, but also the love with which we love you. And we pray that you would help us this morning as we think through how we love others and what that means in difficult situations. We pray that you would fill our minds, but also that you would deal with us deeply and personally this morning. And we ask it for Jesus' glory. Amen. I mentioned yesterday the danger of the way in which we let human concepts fill Bible concepts. So we come to the Bible with all sorts of ideas in our heads about what love is and what it means to love. And then we read God is love in 1 John 4, 8. And we think, oh, well, if I were love, I would do this. And we draw all sorts of conclusions which are not the conclusions that Scripture itself draws. And to counteract that, we need to make sure that our understanding of the nature of God's love is filled with, is populated by, if you like, God's own account of himself and his own love. And in particular in these sessions, we're trying to think about God's other attributes that he reveals in Scripture, to set them alongside his love and to allow what the Bible says about those other attributes to inform our understanding of the nature of his love so that the Bible interprets itself to us. That's what we're trying to do. And yesterday, we thought about God's attribute of omniscience, the fact that he has an exhaustive, comprehensive knowledge of all things past, present, and future because he ordains them. And we marveled at the fact that though he knows us exhaustively inside out, and though he alone knows the depths of our sinfulness in a way that even we don't, yet he knows us relationally and in love. And today we're going to come to the second of his attributes to set alongside his love, which is his justice. So we're going to think particularly about the relationship between God's love and his justice. I want to start, though, thinking with you about um, our relationships and the kind of relationships in which we find ourselves. It's obvious, isn't it, that we all live in a very complex web of different human relationships. So you come into the world as a child, and you may come into the world with or acquire brothers and sisters, a unique kind of relationship. And as you grow, hopefully you find some friends, and so you have friendly relationships with people. And you may get married, you may therefore have a husband or a wife, another kind of relationship. And at some point you'll become a worker, won't you? I'm not being exhaustive here, there are obviously more relationships I'm missing out. But these are probably some of the main ones that dominate our lives. You become a worker, you're employed by somebody, you work for somebody or you employ somebody. You become a church member if you are a Christian in one form or another, involved in the local body of Christ. And some of you, I know, may become pastors of that body and leaders in that body, elders in it as well. So we live in this complex set of very different relationships, all of which require different things of us. And they also present their own challenges, don't they? And they all represent opportunities for us to be hurt in some way. And you can run through the relationships and think about the different opportunities, can't you? So you come into the world as a child. And probably all of us experience and all of us who are parents inflict, at one time or another, harshness on our children. 
and you scale that up all the way through to various kinds of abuse which parents can inflict on their children. We have brothers and sisters, perhaps, and it's sad how many tales you hear of brothers and sisters falling out with one another in catastrophic ways, typically over an inheritance issue of some sort. We have friends, and friends can be unkind, can't they, and say hurtful things to one another, and children sometimes talk about how so-and-so said, I'm his ex-friend. This was a new one on us, this concept of an ex-friend. But friends can be very hurtful, can't they? Husbands and wives, of course. Well, it's perhaps the, the, the smaller end of the scale. You can have emotional withdrawal in a marriage. You can have a marriage becoming functional and, and pretty cold. And that, again, scales up all the way through to adultery and betrayal in a marriage. Workers. Workers can be subject to all sorts of abusive behavior, can't they, if you think about it? There's, there's the simple level of ingratitude, which just makes you feel unappreciated at work, all the way through to unjust treatment of a worker who is seriously wronged, even measured by the law of the land, is wronged in some way. Church members, sadly, we know that sometimes pastors don't shepherd the sheep, they butcher the sheep. You meet people who have been seriously wounded by being a member of a church. Conversely, if you become the pastor of a church, it may be that you experience criticism. I think of a friend who received a note each week telling him how long his sermon was and how it was therefore too long. Each week from the same person. You think of the relentless little chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. One of the CCF writers talks about how he, he was told by a, a member of a church that his preaching was killing the congregation. A relentless criticism and undermining. And in the end, sometimes, a, a, sadly, a pastor is ousted by the members of a church. So all of our relationships present, don't they, a wonderful richness and can be an incredible blessing to us and a joy to us. But simultaneously, they all present danger and they are all contexts in which we can be hurt and often deeply hurt in different ways within them. And what I want to think about today in the context of thinking about the relationship between God's love and his justice is... The question, what does it mean for us to love in the context of those kinds of relationships which are going wrong? What does it mean to love in those relationships when they're going wrong? And therefore, the first thing I want to do, and those of you here yesterday will know that we're having pauses for silent reflection. The first thing I want to do is to give you a minute to ask a pretty basic question as we begin to think about this topic, which is this. Who has sinned against you? Now, some of you, maybe, are blissfully free of people who have sinned in serious or notable ways against you. Possibly, the younger you are, the more likely that is. But many of you will be far from free of being sinned against. And it will, of course, come in various kinds and various degrees. But I want us to pause now to take a minute to think... Who in your life has sinned against you? And you, can, you may need to go back a long way. This may be something that's very current for you. But just reflect on, in the context of the, the breadth of relationships that I've described, that question for one minute of silence. Identify them in your minds. Name them. Think of them. Who has sinned against you? When we think about ways in which we've been sinned against, it is tempting, is it not, to seek to escape from relationships. That's one option, isn't it? 
if you've had bad experiences and people have hurt you, especially if they've hurt you in serious and long-term damaging ways, an obvious solution is, well, let's avoid such relationships because then it can't happen again. Let's try to escape them and flee from them. Let's try to construct some kind of disengaged, emotionally detached existence, which means we are not exposed to being vulnerable anymore because nobody can get close enough to hurt us. There was a, a famous monk in the early church who lived on the top of a column. I think it was for 30 years. Does anyone, was it 30 years? Simon Stylites? I can't remember. It was probably around about 30 years. Now, what he was thinking is escape from the world. The world is full of dangerous temptations. If I can go and live on the top of a column by myself for 30 years, I will escape all sorts of temptations. Of course, there's a bit of a problem that he took to the top of the column with him, his own heart, um, which you imagine kept him fairly busy with some serious temptations anyway. But you could do that kind of thing, couldn't you? You can think, here's the answer to being hurt in relationships, is to, to go and live on the top of an emotional column, which means nobody can get near me to hurt me. You create a kind of Teflon existence, don't you? A, a sort of non-stick. Nothing sticks and therefore nothing hurts. Or a cocooned existence, a, a protective, hardened emotional coating around you. And I wish, therefore, just to, to, to knock that one on the head in case that's where we are, if that's, if that's what's tempting you as an alternative in difficult relationships, simply to detach yourself. You know, like the, 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 the young man who's been hurt in a relationship, he's broken up with his girlfriend, and he, he swears the answer is he's never going to get into another relationship. Um, we can't take that as an option, can we, for various theological reasons. First of all, we are, we are created as social beings, by creation, we are social beings. You think about Adam, it's not good for Adam to be alone. That's not primarily, I think, in the context because of his emotional life. It's because of the work that he's called to do. He can't accomplish the work of subduing the earth by himself. We are created in the context of society and social relationships, family, etc., etc. And so it's just impossible to, to undo the way that God has created the world. Secondly, we are redeemed in a social context as well, aren't we? We are redeemed into the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is the context for Christian growth. There's that amazing section in Ephesians 4 where Paul talks about the gifts that the ascended Christ gives to the church. And he does talk there about the special offices and that the permanent offices of the church, like the pastor and teacher, but he also talks in that chapter about how the body builds itself up as the members of the body speak the truth to each other and mature one another. So if you're tempted to think, I've been so burnt by these relationships, I'm simply going to try to hold myself back from them, that is not an option in the Christian life. You've been redeemed into a body which is a, a mutually maturing body. The way you grow into the likeness of Jesus is by functioning as part of that body. So you don't have the option of isolating yourself. If you do, the result will inevitably be serious spiritual immaturity in your life. And then thirdly, we are called to love one another, aren't we? It's when we love one another that we know that we are his. This is a, what John says in 1 John 3.14, for example, and various other places in his letter. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Well, if you, if you cocoon yourself and isolate yourself from the brothers, you're not loving the brothers. Actually, if you cocoon and isolate yourself, therefore, sooner or later your assurance is going to begin to disappear and you're going to begin to wonder if you do know that you've passed out of death and into life because you've cut yourself off from the context in which your salvation is worked out. 
So you really can't isolate yourself. As much as sometimes when we're wounded and sore, we would love to isolate ourselves in order to protect ourselves from further harm. That can never be the answer. Because you are created social, you are redeemed social, and you are to live in love with others, you can't isolate yourself. But, of course, inevitably that involvement with others, because they are sinners, and because you are a sinner, is going to result in pain for you. I don't want to be fatalistic about this, but it is inevitable that you will, will actually hurt and be hurt in the Christian life. Because you're a sinner in that context. And because the flesh is still at war with the spirit. Now, here's another question for you to reflect on. Having thought about who has hurt you, I want you now to ask the question, how do you react when someone hurts you? Before we move to look at what the Bible teaches about the answer to that. So this is not how do you think you should react, okay? I know how you think you should react. This is how do you react, How do you react when someone sins against you? What's your reaction? Think about it. Imagine that conversation. You have a conversation with a woman at church. You come home and you say to your husband or to your friend or whoever, do you know, they said this, what's what's your reaction here? There's some trouble with the boss at work. What's your, honestly, honestly, what is your reaction? I'm not, you're not going to share this. It's not a sharing session. So you can be honest with your piece of paper in your mind in the next minute as you think about it. What is your reaction when someone sins against you? One minute of reflection on that. Now, when we come to think about how we should react in that kind of situation and that kind of difficulty, the answer in one sense is very simple, isn't it? Well, we are to love And we know that because the Lord Jesus teaches us that. We know that the Bible tells us that we're to love our neighbor. We know that the Lord Jesus says, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's quite clear in the teaching of Jesus that we are to love even our enemies. And in one sense, the answer, therefore, is simple. You are to love your enemies. And it's true to say that God loves his enemies, isn't it? We've seen that in Romans, if you've been in the Romans Bible readings, that God loves uh, his enemies and reconciles us to himself in Christ through the cross. So in one sense, in loving our enemies, we're being like God. We are to imitate God. And the Bible is full of injunctions to imitate God. Matthew 5.48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are to copy God. It's full of injunctions to be like the Lord Jesus himself, isn't it? Romans 8.28, God's purpose is to conform us to the image of his son, to make us like Jesus. So in one sense, the answer is obvious. Well, what are you to do in all of these difficult relationships with their trials? You are to love even your enemies. And in that, you are to be like God and you are to be like Jesus. But, and here is the, where it gets more complicated, It's not quite that simple, is it? Because at the same time, you don't have to go very far through the Bible before you realize that there is a crucial difference between God's love and our love at just this point. And what I want to say to you this morning, as well as saying to you, be like God in this kind of situation, is actually to say to you, and this is the burden of the the talk, to say to you, don't be like God when someone sins against you. You are not to imitate God in the way you react when somebody sins against you. And if you imitate God 
when somebody sins against you, you will end up in dire, dire trouble spiritually. Now, you may be surprised by that. You may think it's normal for preachers to tell you to, to copy Jesus and be like Jesus and be like God. And why is, this, why is this man telling me not to be like God? Well, let's have a think about it. God's love in the Bible always acts in perfect harmony with his justice. Which is to say that when God loves a sinner, he does not overlook the sinner's sin and just forget about it. Of course, he does forget about it. Psalm 103 tells us that. But he forgets about it by dealing with it, not by overlooking it. So that God loves us and at the same time does something with our sin. He doesn't just drop it and let it go. But instead, as we were hearing in the Romans talk, he deals with it. So that God maintains his love for the sinner and his hatred for the sinner at the same time. Now you may think... Hatred for the sinner. Hold on a minute. I've always been taught that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. If that's what you think, come back tomorrow. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. And I'm going to try and explain tomorrow why that is actually wrong. God hates sinners. Why do I say that? Not because I like saying hard things, but because it's just the vocabulary of the Bible. It's Psalm 5 verse 5. He hates evildoers. So God when he loves, maintains his hatred against sin at the same time. He doesn't just forget the sin. Now, some deny this. Some want to say that God and man must behave in exactly the same way at this point. So that when someone sins against God, when someone sins against me... It's really important, they say, to think that we both have to behave in exactly the same way. And then they read Matthew 5.39. Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And they conclude from that that when someone sins against God, he will not maintain his hatred against sin and the sinner, but he'll just let it go. Because, they reason, that is what he tells us to do. And they say, it couldn't be the case, could it, that God would behave in one way and then tell you to behave differently. It must be the case, they say, that God behaves in the way that he requires of us. And so they conclude from that, that when someone sins against God, there is no such thing as an atonement in which sin is punished because God just says, just let it go. And ultimately, they will conclude there is no such thing as hell where sin will be punished either. Some of them do take that step and some of them don't, but it is the logic of the position. In the bigger controversy that blew up about the atonement a number of years ago, um, Steve Chalk took this line of argument. He said this, if the cross has anything to do with penal substitution, with Jesus being punished for sin, then Jesus' teaching, here in Matthew 5, becomes a divine case of, do as I say, not as I do. I, for one, believe that God practices what he preaches. Do you see the logic? 
God can't tell you, just let it go. And at the same time, not just let it go himself. If he tells us, just let it go, that's what he must do when someone sins against him. Just let it go. No penalty anywhere. Just let it go. And if he does tell us to let it go and doesn't let it go himself, then he has become that worst of things, a hypocrite. Because he's telling us to do one thing while he's doing another. I wonder what you think of that. Do you see the logic of the position? The logic of the position is to identify the characteristics of human love and the characteristics of divine love. It is to say that we should expect that love for God is what love is for man. And we should identify divine and human love at this point in how they deal with sin committed against the person. Would you turn to Romans 12, please? Let's ask the Apostle Paul what he thinks about this question, shall we? Romans 12. Let's pick it up at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So there it is. That is right in Steve Chalk's argument. Here is an injunction to bless people when they persecute you, not to curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Okay, so that half of the argument is quite clearly correct, isn't it? We are told not to seek payment for sins committed against us. Remember the logic of Steve Chalk's position? That must mean that's what God does, because otherwise he's a hypocrite. Let's ask the Apostle Paul. What do you think, Paul? Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you see the point? Paul's logic is precisely the opposite of Chalk's logic at this point. The very reason that God tells you not to take revenge on your enemies, not to curse your enemies is because, he says, that belongs to him and he will do it. It's astonishing, isn't it? It's the precise opposite of that position. Don't do it because I will do it, God says. This is my business, not your business. How does God do it, we may well ask. To our eyes, it's like a conundrum, isn't it? We know we've sinned against God. We know that he loves us, that God is love. How can he also be perfectly just? How can he take revenge against his enemies and save us? We wonder. We, humanly, we look at it and think it's a baffling problem. Sometimes preachers suggest that in God's mind it's a bit of a baffling problem as well. Do you know, you know the kind of thing? I mean, how is he going to do it? It's as if God sits there and he's, he's just a bit stuck. What am I going to do? Because my love makes me want to save them, but my, my justice stands against it because it demands punishment for sin. Hmm. Hmm. How can I do it? 
But God doesn't have dilemmas like that. To us, it's, a, it's an astonishing dilemma. How could he do both? But to God, there are no dilemmas. There is a perfectly harmonious plan by which he enacts the demands of his love and his justice simultaneously. He doesn't have to puzzle over it. He's not puzzled by anything. And that plan, as we heard from Romans 3, if you're in that session, is realized at the cross. Let's just remind ourselves of the well-known words of Isaiah 53 to see how God acts perfectly, simultaneously, in love and in justice. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah, and this is especially clear in the Hebrew, really underlines all of the pronouns here. The he and the we, contrasting them in different ways, em- em- emphasized here. We deserve this, but he takes this. He does it for us. And interestingly, it's even there in 1 John 4. Flick ahead to 1 John 4. With that famous statement in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love, how is it unpacked? What does God's love mean in the context of 1 John, you wonder? Well, read on in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you see? God is love in the context of propitiation. God is love in the context of a statement that the way this works for him to be love is that he sends his son to bear the wrath of God against sin. So the Bible invests the concept of God's love, even in the context of that famous statement, with the idea of his justice maintained at the cross. Now, how is this just, we may wonder? Well, it is just because the Lord Jesus Christ is not some random third party over there. It's not as if I'm here with all of my guilt and my sin upon me and deserving punishment and Jesus is over there somewhere and God the Father comes along and says, right, he will take the punishment for you. It's nothing like that. The Bible emphasizes again and again and again, especially in John and in Paul, the union between Christ and the believer so that we are joined together by the bond of the Holy Spirit with the most extraordinary union. So it's not God getting the wrong man and doing something unjust in the atonement. It is Christ being joined to us so that he can stand in our place. When you look through scripture, you find this union with Christ unpacked in different ways. It's, it has a, what you might call a decretal aspect. That is to say, it exists in the decree of God from before the foundation of the world. It's there in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, where Paul talks about us being chosen in him, in Christ. So we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. There's a decretal union with Christ. The decree of God puts us in Christ before he even makes the world. And then Jesus comes and he lives on earth. And who is he when he lives on earth? He lives on earth as our head, as our representative, as our king, a king representing his people. And so he identifies himself with us from the beginning by taking on what Paul calls in Romans 8 at the beginning, the likeness of sinful flesh. 
There he is standing as, as our representative in our condition. He's baptized. Have you ever thought about that? Why is Jesus baptized? What's baptism about? What's John's baptism about? It's about repentance and forgiveness. Why would Jesus be baptized? His baptism is a substitutionary baptism because he identifies himself with his people and stands in our place even in being baptized as one of us. So in his life on earth in the first century, he is joined to us as what you might call our federal head. Federal just means covenantal. In God's covenant, Christ is appointed as the king, as the head of his people. And he comes and he lives and he does what he does and he dies and he rises in that office as our head, joined to us in the plan of God. So there's a decretal union where we are in Christ from eternity. There's then what we might, we might call that an incarnational union. We might call it a redemptive historical union because in redemptive history in the first century, Jesus is united to us as our head, working as our representative. And then thirdly, there is what we might call an existential union with Christ. And this is the one that, we, that we're familiar with because this is the one that we enjoy. We weren't there when the decree was made. We weren't there when Jesus acted as our head in the first century. But when we experience existential union with Christ, that's us becoming a Christian. That's God joining us to Christ. It's drawing us to him and uniting us to him by faith and the spirit. And that's what happens when you become a Christian. You are joined to Christ. You are part of the vine now. So scripture again and again, and as I say, this is especially clear in John, such as John 15 with the vine and the branches. In Paul, you count up the number of times Paul uses the phrase in Christ. Go get your highlighter pen out and just, when you're reading Paul, just, just note that phrase. Keeps on coming, keeps on coming, keeps on coming. Because the Bible emphasizes our union with Christ as our representative head and king and therefore as our substitute. And that's why God can maintain the demands of his justice, even as he loves us. By Christ, who is our justly appointed representative and substitute, bearing the requirements of justice in our place when he dies on the cross under the wrath of his father. So much is that so that you can even find Paul using quite surprising language. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5.14, where he says this. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. That's interesting, isn't it? One has died for all. I understand that. Jesus died in the first century for us. But therefore, all have died. I mean, he obviously means all believers in the context. How how have we died? We are so joined to Christ, so united to Christ in the plan and purpose of God that we can say we died when he died. John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, puts it like this. I put this up on the screen so you can see it. He says, God might punish the elect, God's chosen people, either in their own persons or in their surety, which is a technical word for a legal substitute, standing in their room instead. And when he is punished, they also are punished. For in this point of view, the federal head, the covenantal head, And those represented by him are not considered as distinct, but as one. For although they are not one in respect of personal unity, you've not just been sort of melted into Jesus and become one person with him, 
They are, however, one. That is one body in mystical union. He means spiritual union. Yea, one mystical Christ. Namely, the surety, the substitute is the head, those represented by him, the members. And when the head is punished, the members also are punished. Such is the union, Owen is saying. Now, of course, in one sense, he's wrong. (laughs) The whole point of the cross is that you're not punished, isn't it? The whole point of the cross is that you're free from actually experiencing the punishment of sins in your own body in hell. So you're, you're free of it in that sense. But on the other hand, such is the union with Christ, so much is he the head of this body that you can get to the point of thinking, yes, actually, I've borne the punishment of my sins because I'm in Jesus and he's borne it. It's dealt with and gone. Such is our union with him. And so we see how God loves us and forgives us, but doesn't do that by setting aside the requirements of his justice, but by perfectly maintaining the demands of his justice against us in the Lord Jesus Christ when he dies, so that his love and his justice are in perfect harmony. So let's come back to the relationships that we started with we live inescapably within human relationships in which we sin and are sinned against so that we will be hurt how should we react when we are sinned against not like god you see why you see what god does when we sin against god he still maintains the demands of his justice either either in hell or at the cross. No sin is left unpunished. When someone sins against you, Paul says in Romans, as we saw in Romans 12, you are absolutely not to behave like God at that point. You do the forgiving that God does, but you don't do the demanding the price of sin that God does. Some people can do it. It's just worth noting this because Paul goes on in Romans 13 to talk about the governing authorities. And he says they do minister the wrath of God. So I don't mean that nowhere in human society is there to be any punishment for sin. God says, well, there are people who have that job. It's the rulers. They've been given a limited remit, a controlled, defined, limited remit to exact a foretaste of the final wrath of God against sinners through the criminal justice system. But you haven't. You're an individual Christian, and you are prohibited that as a response when someone sins against you. Now, obviously, if somebody commits a crime against you, you need to take that to the civil authorities so that they can do their job. But you don't punish it yourself. And I want to reflect with you now on what happens when we get this wrong. If we forget that at this point we are and we must be different from God in the way that we love. Different from the way he loves when he loves. What happens if we get this wrong? Think about it for a minute and you'll see that you can get it wrong in one of two ways. Okay? Think about the fact that God is like this and we are to be different and to be like this. So you can get it wrong in one of two ways. Either you might think that God is to be like us. Okay, so he tells us 
Don't seek revenge. And you think, when you get it wrong, so God's got to be like us. He mustn't do it. That's Steve Chalk's error. That's, that's one way of getting it wrong. God's got to be like us. Or secondly, you do it the other way around. And you think, well, I do believe that God takes revenge on his enemies. And that's what I must be like. Do you see? So either you make God a big man. Remember I talked yesterday about big man theology. He's just, he's just got to be like us. Or you get your view of God right and you think that we've got to be like him. Those are two different ways of collapsing the difference between us and God at this point. So let's just imagine what happens if you do either of those things. Let's take the one I said first, first of all, and to think that God is like us. What happens if you think that God does not take vengeance on his enemies? First of all, what happens theologically if you think that? You can see, can't you, and I've mentioned it already, some of the ramifications of that in the rest of your theological system. The atonement doctrine has to be totally rewritten because there is now no space for thinking that what Jesus was doing was bearing our sins. He wasn't bearing punishment for sin because there is no longer any punishment because God's just letting everything go. So you have to come up with some new theory of the atonement. And that's what we see happening among a lot of writers and speakers and preachers. Normally it's what you might call the sponge theory of the atonement. Somehow the world's a mess. Jesus enters into the cycle of the mess of the world. He dies in the mess of the world, affected by the mess of the world. And then he rises triumphant over it and brings new life. And so undoes the cycle of mess in the world. But do you see what it is? It's a cycle of mess down here. It's not about how you relate to God anymore. Because God isn't wrathful anymore. He's just going to let it go. But there's just this spiral going on on earth. And Jesus breaks this spiral somehow and brings new life in the resurrection. That seems to me among what you might call departing evangelicals. That is the principal alternative to penal substitutionary atonement. This sort of sponge. Jesus soaks it up and breaks the cycle kind of theory. But it's completely missed the fact that the atonement is about our relationship to God. Not to a human cycle. So it undermines the doctrine of the atonement and means you need to find a new one. Of course, it completely rewrites your eschatology, your doctrine of the last things, because there's now not going to be a hell, is there? Or if there is a hell, it's going to be one of those hells from which God is utterly absent and has nothing to do with it. Now, I know there's a right sense, isn't there, that we want to say that God is absent from hell, because Jesus talks about saying to people, depart from me, go away from me. So there is a right sense in which we articulate what the punishment of hell means as a, a departure from God, an awayness from God. But there's also rather a lot of biblical evidence that there's more to it than that. Because, I mean, in Isaiah, for example, um, at the beginning of Isaiah, there are those passages which talk about God coming in judgment. And what happens when people come in judgment, when God comes in judgment, is that the people want to hide from him. They want the rocks to fall on them. So they're, so they're concealed from God. So there, do you see, the punishment of sin is presented not as being away from God, but as being actually precisely brought face to face with God. That's what's so terrible about it, is that you're confronted with the presence of a holy God. And then you get extraordinary things described in Revelation. Let me read Revelation 14, picking up at verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. Where? In a dark corner of the universe from which God is absent. 
That's not what we read. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The very Lamb who was slain to take away the sin of the world will be the one in whose presence the lost are tormented. Now, how do you square that? How do you square the depart from me absence of God language with this other strand of biblical evidence which seems to imply that hell is is actually a confrontation with the presence of God? Well, like this, I think. When it talks about depart from me, it's talking about depart from me as your loving father who blesses you. Depart from that relationship to me. But you depart from that relationship to me into the relationship where you with your sins still on you are confronted by me as the judge in my unalloyed holiness. Hell is both the presence and absence of God. But on this alternative view, God just lets sins go. And if there is a hell left, then it's just this dark place which people lock themselves into and stay in by themselves. But that is simply not what hell is, according to the Bible. But I now want to think a little bit more about this from another angle, not so much from the systematic theological angle, what happens to the rest of your theology if you follow that line of argument, but actually what happens to your life. Because the argument comes to us as an argument about the way we live. Yes? The argument runs, conservative Bible-believing Christians, and I'm not making this up, okay? I've heard this from the lips of the proponents of this view. Conservative Bible-believing Christians, because they believe in a God who exacts revengeance, are nasty people who treat people nastily. You see the connection? Because they're being like their God. And the argument runs that if we change our understanding of God and we realize that he's not like that and that he just lets things go, then we will understand why we should let things go. Do you see? The principle operating again, the logic is, we are like God. We are to identify the nature of our love with the nature of God's love. And so the argument runs, the way to become better people, more godly people, more gracious, more forgiving people, is to revise your picture of God himself and realize that that's what he's like. So the motivation for this, you might say, is a good motivation. It's to deal with some of the nastiness among conservative Christians, of which there is quite a lot. Let's not deny it. But let's just think about it for a moment. If I start saying, God does not take vengeance, that is not what God is like. He just lets things go. So you shouldn't do it either. What effect will that really have on us as Christians? Will it really have the effect of making us more gracious and forgiving? I put it to you, it will actually have precisely the opposite effect. Think of Paul again. Let's ask Paul. It's very good to ask Paul. Let's go and ask him again, shall we? What does he say in Romans 12? Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Why, Paul? Why should we do that? What's our motivation for being more gracious, more forgiving, more bless your enemy kind of people? For, because it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You see what Paul's thinking? Paul is thinking, the thing that is going to stop us being nasty conservative Christians and make us more gracious and forgiving is not when we think that God lets everything go. It's when we understand that it's not our business to maintain the demands of justice. It's his. And so we can let things go. So run the reverse logic. What happens if you rewrite your doctrine of God and you say, God just lets things go? 
Well, according to Paul's reasoning, that undercuts your reason for letting things go. According to Paul's logic, the very reason you can let things go is because God has told you that he won't let things go. And if we go around thinking God just lets everything go, we're left with no reason to let things go ourselves. Think about it like this. It sounds a bit complicated, doesn't it? Let me try and simplify it. In what kind of situation do you get vigilantes? When do vigilantes arise? It's obvious, isn't it? Vigilantes arise when people feel that the police aren't doing their job. Yes? It's when law and order seems to be breaking down that we get out our guns and go out on our motorbikes to bring law and order ourselves. When we know that the police and the courts are functioning properly, we don't need to be vigilantes. So, which is going to help us better to be more gracious and forgiving? A universe in which God is maintaining the demands of his justice because that's his job. Or a universe in which he's let everything go. Surely, we will be more forgiving and gracious when we believe and teach and maintain that God does not let things go. And actually, if we go around saying that he does and teaching that he does, that's what's going to leave us thinking, well, if he's not going to deal with it, I'm going to have to deal with it myself. So I think although the position that Steve Chalk maintains is well-intentioned in the sense that he wants to encourage Christians to be more gracious and forgiving, it will have actually precisely the opposite effect. Secondly, what happens when we get it wrong the other way around? Okay, we've just thought about what happens when we get it wrong by saying that God must be like us, that God must do what he tells us to do. He must let things go without any punishment. We've thought about that theologically and practically. Let's look at the other way around now. What happens when we get it wrong by thinking that we should be like God? We believe that God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And we think, okay, that's what I'm going to do. We forget that we are to be different from God in the way that we love. What happens then? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? If we think that we are to copy God at that point, then we come to believe that we must exercise justice in all of our relationships to the last farthing. And we have a problem, don't we? Because unlike God, who can provide a substitute, we can't. We can't appoint someone from before the foundation of the world and join sinners to him. We can't make him the covenantal federal head in the first century. We can't join people to him and so, so have a substitute who we punish for other people's sins. We can't do that. So if someone sins against me and I think I've got to be like God, who's going to pay the price? They're going to have to pay the price. And so I think... God says vengeance is mine, I must say vengeance is mine, and I must demand the price of every sin committed against me from the person who's committed it against me. What have I just made myself in doing that? What have I made myself? I've actually made myself God, haven't I? I've put myself on his throne I have enthroned myself as the cosmic minister of justice. And who is it in the Bible who tries to make himself God? Satan. The devil tries to make himself God. And see, so if I go around thinking, God says vengeance is mine, that's how you've got to respond when someone sins against you. You've got to, you've got to 
get payment from them, then I have put myself in the place of God and I've actually become like the devil. I have become satanic in the way I conduct myself. I wonder, is that you? Year after year, maybe lawyer after lawyer, but maybe not, maybe you have no legal recourse, you have harbored that desire for vengeance against somebody who has sinned against you. It is like, initially, perhaps, a small pet, isn't it? It's a little, small part of your mental landscape to begin with. And you just gently nurse it. And you feed and water it. And you give it a comfortable bed of hay to sleep in. And every so often you pop out to its hutch and you caress it. And gradually that small pet, which initially occupies a small part of your mental landscape, grows and grows and grows. Until in the end it becomes some kind of monster. And then it breaks into your house and it consumes you. And you can get to the point, can't you, in your soul, in the life of your soul, where really there is very, very little left apart from a searing desire for revenge. Very little left. You're clinging on by your fingertips to your humanity and to your Christian life because you've been eaten up by a desire for revenge on someone who has sinned against you in some way. Now, note, please, that you are probably right that they have sinned against you. Most of us, when we fall into this sin or we're tempted by this, are doing it on good grounds, yes? I'm not talking about you making up some injustice that someone's committed against you. They really have. And they really do deserve what you would wish upon them in the justice of God. That is why it's so powerful, isn't it? It only gains its power because you're right. Your analysis of that situation and how they treated you is spot on. There's no doubt about it. You are right, they are wrong, and they deserve it. That's precisely why it's such a potent temptation for you. Of course, in some cases we're wrong. In some cases we've read the whole situation wrongly, and actually it's at least 50-50 or 90-10, and we're the ones in the wrong. But in many cases, and perhaps in the most potent cases, you are genuinely the victim here. And they are definitely the guilty perpetrators. And that is precisely why the pet is so dangerous. Because you're right about it. But is there little of you left, apart from a searing desire for revenge? Let's pause and ask ourselves these questions. Are you nursing a desire for revenge? How old is it? How long has it been going on? And how firm a grip do you think it's got on you at this point? Let's keep silent for a minute and reflect on these. If the answer to the first question is yes, as I expect for a number of you it is, then I would use the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, to let it go. You have to let it go. 
because if you don't, it will consume you. What you are doing by harboring a desire for revenge against your enemies, even against your legitimate enemies who have definitely and truly sinned against you in the most horrific ways, is that you are putting yourself in the place of God. And you have to let him do his job himself. And you have to stop trying to take from him his job and make it your own. Leave room for the wrath of God. And if you don't do that, then what you are saying in effect is, I don't trust you to do what you've told me you're going to do. So I'm going to cling on to this thing and keep trying to make it my own. But God has told you in his word that he is a consuming fire, that he does not leave the guilty unpunished, that every sin committed in every corner of his creation will be paid for. It has either been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross or it will be paid for in hell. God has not missed anything. He's not going to miss anything. And if you refuse to let go, you are trying to cling to it because you are not trusting him to deal with it. And you have to trust him to deal with it. And you have to stop trying to take his place and make his job your job. Let's take a minute of silence. Will you consciously let God be God with your grievance in mind? That person you named in the opening question who has sinned against you, will you now consciously, deliberately let God be God with that grievance in mind? Let's take a minute to resolve in our minds. closing question for us to think about how do you know how do you know if you've done it how do you know if you've let it go if you've resolved to let God be God I was thinking about this this morning and I think I changed my mind about it a little bit I, I think I previously thought there comes a moment when you let things go and they've gone and you, you can come to understand that they've gone and I thought but that's not what it's like is it because they come back again as temptations and maybe not with as much force as they used to have but you find yourself wishing those things that you wished against them again and so I think there is a sense in which probably both answers are true on the one hand there are decisive moments in our spiritual progress aren't there where we let things go and we do take a significant step forward in how we're relating to someone or how we're relating to them in our minds and in that sense we leave it behind and we move on So I believe there are decisive moments. Probably, however, especially if it's something deep-seated, it's going to come back again. (laughs) And maybe in unexpected ways and unexpected things will remind you of that person or of what they did, and you'll feel rising up within you again that desire for you to take revenge. So on the one hand, I want to say I do think it is possible for you to make real significant steps forward in dealing with this, but don't be surprised if it comes back and you have to deal with it again especially if it's something deep-seated. I find it helpful to think of this little test when I want to know whether I've forgiven someone. Of course, there's a difference, isn't there, between forgiveness and actual reconciliation, yes? We know that, that forgiveness is something we do in our hearts. 
And we do that before someone comes to say sorry to us and to repent of what they've done. That's what it means to forgive our enemies. That's what it means to pray the Lord's Prayer as we forgive those. It's something that's happened internally. It may not mean that there is yet external reconciliation because external reconciliation will often depend on actual repentance. But, so we, we, I'm not concerned so much with that. I want, I'm concerned that we should be at the point where we've forgiven them so that reconciliation from our side is possible. I think that's why Paul says, as far as it lies with you, no, as far as you can deal with it, you've got to deal with it. But he's recognizing in that little phrase in Romans 13, I think, that it doesn't always rest with us in its, in its entirety. So how do you know if you've got to that point where you are ready where you've forgiven them in your heart, here's a a test. Think of that person who sinned against you. You're sitting at home one day. Someone knocks on the door. You go to the door and you open the door, and they stand there, and they look you in the eye, and looking you in the eye, they say, and they name what they did, And they say, I am sorry for what I did. Please, will you forgive me? What are the next words that come out of your mouth? And there I think you have your answer about whether you've forgiven them or not in your heart. If the next words that come out of your heart are, you're absolutely right you did. You did this and this and this. Or if they are, You're absolutely right you did this and this and this and this and this. You're not ready, are you? But if the next words that come out of your mouth, probably through tears, are, as God has forgiven me, so I forgive you, then I think you know you're ready. It's the doorstep test. Imagine them at your door. Honestly, What does your heart want to say to them when they knock on the door and repent of what they've done? As I said yesterday, we're going to close these sessions with a prayer. And I will pray now slowly, and I hope in your minds thoughtfully, the prayer that comes at the end of the chapter where I talk about all of this. Let's pray together. This talk was recorded at Word Alive 2015. Word Alive is here to serve the church in reaching the world. Our desire is to resource individuals and churches and empower them in their mission to local communities in the wider world. For further information and to hear more talks from this and previous events, please visit our website at wordaliveevent.org.